This is Hitchcock Happy Hour, a film podcast where we discuss our favorite movies from the classics to today's box office hits, one cocktail at a time. Cheers! Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Hitchcock Happy Hour. I'm Lydia Jordan and I'm Sara Shaw and today is a big day for me. (laughs) It is, it is like, yeah, I'm trying to think of the right word or phrase to capture how monumental this is but yeah it's a big fucking day i would call it my destiny um i don't (laughs) i don't really know you're like was i chosen for this moment yeah yes yes i was (laughs) am i (laughs) i think like i do this like with this specific movie once a year at least but now I have a platform to do it so now you have a reason to do it I I mean some might say that it's like Frodo taking the ring (laughs) to Mordor is equivalent to you talking about this on our podcast I am the podcast bearer for this episode does that make me Sam (laughs) the the true hero of the story making all the cocktails (laughs) Sam with all the food Oh my god. Um, so obviously, uh goes without saying, we're talking about Lord of the Rings Return of the King today, and if you haven't already figured it out, it is my favorite movie of all time. Um, pretty much anybody that knows me knows this about me, I would say. It is probably the fact I lead with about myself. You're like, it is my personality, thank you. It is my personality. <laughs> um, but I'm really excited about this. Big shout out to Lydia. I, I coerced her, um, at gunpoint to let me do this episode. No, so I mean, really I, I was about excited it. about this. I... I'm not, like, the biggest Lord of the Rings fan. My sister probably wins that award in our family, but I do enjoy it. And we used to rewatch the extended edition trilogy every summer, multiple times. <laughs> Sometimes during the holidays, you know, <laughs> nothing says Christmas like a little... Nope, it doesn't. It is my Christmas tradition. I watch these movies every Christmas, um, and yeah, I love them. I've, I've sat through them. I've done the day marathon of them. I've done the extended edition marathons. I've done it all. And I think it's just a generational, I don't know, it's just like a movie of our generation. And um, I mean, it it's was great. such a They're big great. deal when it came out. This like launched Peter Jackson yeah. from, I think, relative obscurity into like probably one of the most famous directors of our time. So. It absolutely did. And I'm really excited to talk about this. So we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings, Return of the King specifically, because it is the one that won Best Picture, but obviously because the movies are one story we're gonna be intertwining um aspects from from all three um so before we jump in though another thing i'm really excited about is the drink we're drinking today lydia tell us about it oh my gosh thank you um so this came to us by way of tiktok so shout out to the amazing user on tiktok who recommended that we make this cocktail today we're drinking a trinidad sour which i had never heard of um but it's really brilliant. It's basically, um, instead of liquor, you use Angostura bitters, which if you don't know, come from Trinidad and Tobago. So that's why it's called the Trinidad Sour. So it's um, bitters, Angostura bitters, a bunch of them, um, lemon juice, whiskey, and some um, orgeat, and that's it. Yeah, it's super simple. It's, it's super, so good. It's really good. You shake that all together, and it just makes this like beautiful, frothy, like not bitter at all cocktail you would think because angostura is pretty bitter when you have it in like a regular cocktail but because it's mixed with that orgy it's so good and um i think it's so fascinating because the it's like you you swap the ratio so like the the angostura bitters are like like i use one one and and a half half ounces ounces, and the whiskey is like half an ounce so whiskey is basically your bitter here (laughs) and it's amazing yeah it's really tasty so shout out to the user on TikTok um, that recommended this to us. If you guys want to recommend us stuff, please check out our TikTok. And, yeah, and we would literally love to make anything that you want. So yeah. tell us what to make next. <laughs> yeah, and I have no notes. I mean, this is so good. It was so easy to make. It's things that you probably already have in your fridge anyways. And it's just like, it's it's really delicious. The orgy really just really pairs well um with the amount of bitters and if you're I, I will say though if you're not a fan of angostura bitters this cocktail is not for you this cocktail is for sure not for you because it is yeah i mean it's basically only angostura bitters is, yeah is the flavor profile it but is so good though so velvety it's like very that's like the way it's I can so interesting it. and i love yeah. it too because it's just so spice forward which i feel like yeah. isn't something we typically have in our cocktails so it's mm-hmm. really fun 
super no. fun. And I think I, you, Lydia, mentioned this earlier um, before we started recording, but this would be a great like winter cocktail. It's very yeah. the spice. Yeah, it almost tastes kind of like a mulled wine because I think Angostura mm. bitters just have like a ton of like cloves and cinnamon and all kinds of other spices. So it's very, it feels like it could be like really cozy if you're yeah. tired of mulled wine, but you want something cold in the winter. This would be like the perfect substitute and it's so much easier. Yeah, and it's not, it doesn't, it's not very like sugary at all. And it's also not very strong. So it's, yeah. if you just want something chill, this is, this is the one for you because it's the bitters that are the, the, yeah, the it's very drinkable. I've already sucked down like half of it. So. I know, me too. I'm like, <laughs> Let's this go. is so good. I'm really, oh God, it's like delicious. I might make another one. <laughs> Um, but let's jump into it. So we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings today. I think we're going to do something a little bit different something we haven't actually really delved into yet, but I think this is the perfect movie to do it with. Um, we're going to spend some time kind of analyzing the bulk of our, uh, discussion, analyzing, um, the kind of revolutionary, road of visual effects and film editing that this movie kind of prompted in Hollywood and I think this is a great one to do that with because it was so ahead of its time in that um in that realm so uh but we'll just start with the background and kind of jump and jump into it we're not gonna for those of you who are worried that we're gonna literally tell you the entire plot of Lord of the Rings we are not gonna do that we won't do that to you because like we don't have we don't have the time yeah we don't have the time time. You can go watch them. Um, they're great. They are quite a gargantuan beast to to uh, tackle, but they are worth it, um, I would say. So, uh, and then I think this is our first fantasy movie that we're I know. discussing. And it's our Which big is... first, like, big blockbuster, too, I think. Yeah, yeah. This is such a fun one. I know. It's a great one. So let's dive into it. Um, all right. Well, Lord of the Rings Return of the King is a 2003 epic fantasy adventure film directed by Peter Jackson. It's based on the third volume of the J.R.R. Tolkien Lord of the Rings books. The film is the final entry of the Lord of the, Lord of the, Rings, Lord of the Rings trilogy, and the screenplay was adapted by uh, Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Peter Jackson. Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson are married, and they like this was very much like a family affair, which is kind of like sweet. I, I don't, love that. I know, I love it. I think it. I think you can. It just like you can tell that this is very like a um very. I feel like it's a very personal film. Like it's a very like to me, this film feels like a labor of love. Just the amount of detail that everyone who worked on this put into this film. I just think that for so many people, it's like something they grew up with and something they really wanted to honor. So I I think that really comes across in this movie. Absolutely. This is like, that's the perfect way to describe it. Um, the, The film features a massive ensemble cast to include Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Liv Tyler, Viggo Mortensen, Sean Austin, Kate Blanchett, John Rhys Davies, Bernard Hill, Billy Boyd, Dominic Monaghan, Orlando Bloom, Hugo Weaving, Miranda Otto, David Wenham, Carl Urban, John Noble, and Andy Serkis. <laughs> Just to oh, name a few. God. Just to name a few, because there's so many more. <laughs> there's so many people in this movie. I left out Sean Bean, because he is not in the third one, but he is, like, an important person that's in in this story. Yeah. Um, R.I.P. Um, anyway, so it is... This movie is widely considered one of the most influential films of all time, along with the first two, so it's kind of the trilogy, trilogy as a whole. It's considered a landmark in filmmaking, especially in cinematography, visual effects, costume design, and action sequences. Uh, the movie grossed $1.1 billion worldwide, which made it the second oh highest. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it was the second highest grossing film of, of all time when it came out. So I think at this point, other movies have surpassed it. But in the until like 2010, it was considered the second highest grossing movie of all time after, um, I believe, after Titanic and then Avatar like beat it, beat both of them out. Um, oh, what a trash movie. That's for another time. <laughs> I know. We can spend... I can spend so much time ragging on Avatar. <laughs> hot take. I really don't like that movie at all, but... How is I that a hot take? <laughs> I, because I think it's a generational divide because, like, everybody over the age of 45 is obsessed with that movie and everybody under the age of 45, like, fucking hates that movie. It's so long. <laughs> like, it does not need so to be So long. It's so boring. I mean, it's the special just... effects were very cool, but that's the only thing that... Yeah, but it's just so long. The story. Anyway, anyways, we digress. <laughs> we digress. This movie is so long, but amazing. So it's fine. Yes. The Return of the King specifically. So the trilogy as a whole, all three of them together were nominated for a total of thirty Academy Awards. 
the the Return of the King was nominated and won 11 Academy Awards, so it tied with Ben-Hur and Titanic for most Oscar wins, and it also won every movie that it was nominated for, or every category that it was nominated for, which is wow. amazing. It's like so, unheard of. I mean, that, yeah. that, that like doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, for movies that are nominated for that many um, Oscars, it, it won in every single category it was nominated for. And so it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, Best Makeup, Best Original Score, Best Original Song, Best Best Sound Mixing, and Best Visual Effects. I mean, you can't argue with any of those. (laughs) No, and like very weirdly enough, it was not nominated for Best Cinematography, (laughs) which is very strange to me. I don't really know what happened there. Um... The first one won Best Cinematography, but the second two were not nominated, so I don't I don't know if it was just kind of Weird. like a, I feel like they're like they already won one, it's fine. Let's just yeah. give it to somebody else. <laughs> yeah, and I and also weird to me that it actually got no acting nominations because I was just th- gonna mention that it is interesting because there are some I would say pretty stellar performances in this yeah. one. I don't but they didn't None of the actors won for any of the previous films either, No, um, I think Ian McKellen was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and that's the one that I think, like, probably should have won this one uh, for Best Supporting Actor. Um, I, he's amazing in this movie, and I, yeah, and I think... Yeah, he's incredible. Like, honestly, I would also say Andy Serkis as Gollum. Like, what he did with that, it was super revolutionary, and I think it, it, it shouldn't really go unmentioned that that also is kind of a... Um, a bit of a snub because I think it, the, the Oscars just didn't really know what to do with that because it was the yeah. first time anyone had done that kind of acting before. But the way that he was able to like fully method Become act Gollum. that role like, is amazing. <laughs> um, but we'll talk about that a bit when we talk about CGI and, and visual effects. So really interesting, um, huge feat at the Oscars. It swept, obviously it's a massive blockbuster film, largely considered three of the best movies of all all time and this movie is considered the best of the three um which is super fascinating because usually with trilogies the first one is considered the best and then the rest of them are flops but I think it's this one is not that the first two are flops at all but this one is considered like the the best of the three I would agree with that I think it's the best of the three I think it has the most action, but my favorite will always be the first because I just am obsessed with the Shire and I think it's so cute. <laughs> I So that's so funny is like, I have this thing about this movie is that I think that this is the best movie ever made and it's my favorite movie of all time, but I prefer a two, The Two Towers. Like, I think it's more fun to watch. <laughs> I don't oh, know so why. the second one? Yeah. I just find I like it more fun. I like the part with the trees. The ants are my favorite. Like, them taking over. Yeah, like, it's the yeah. best. It's just great. It's, it's like best. nature Tree winning. Tree my fave. Yeah, and you're like, suck it, orcs. Yeah, where is that <laughs> acting nomination for Tree Yeah. <laughs> Love that. Like, can we do like a, can we do like a write-in for <laughs> Tree Beard? <laughs> write-in? <laughs> we don't even know the actor's name who did the voice. Just Tree Beard. Just Tree Beard. <laughs> Any wins? Any wins? <laughs> um, they're like he could not be here today as he cannot be uprooted because from. He, yeah, he, we can't uproot him from. <laughs> um. Anyway, so let's do. I'm just gonna do like a very brief kind of plot summary. It's like not gonna dive into the details at all, but just kind of give an overview of what's going on in the story. So the general like plot of Lord of the Rings as a whole is that the future of civilization is, like, resting on the fate of this one ring, which has been lost for centuries. Um, Powerful forces are unrelenting in their search for it. Fate has placed the ring in the hands of a young hobbit named Frodo Baggins. A daunting task lies ahead for Frodo when he becomes the ring bearer on a quest to destroy the one ring in the fires of Mount Doom, where it was forged. So that's kind of the overarching, like, what Lord of the Rings is about, for those of you who don't know. Um, The Return of the King specifically kind of continues where Two Towers left off with Frodo, Sam, and Gollum um, as they make their way to uh, Mount Doom in Mordor in order to destroy the One Ring, unaware of Gollum's true intentions at that point, while Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, and the rest are joining forces together uh, for a final stand against Sauron and his legions at Minas Tirith. So that's kind of what's going on in the third one so it's kind of the big epic conclusion of like the the like battle for mankind (laughs) at this point it's it's obviously like even with that little of a of a summary like you can tell there's a lot going on in this film 
and it's it's extremely detail oriented and but also very very vast like on on the scale of the production value so I want to spend a little bit of time before we kind of dive into um the deep analysis of the filmmaking of this but like how this movie like actually got made because it's so fascinating because the like the this kind of movie requires the type of visual effects and um computer technology that we have today (laughs) to be made and when Peter Jackson decided to do this, it was like the mid-90s, which is so interesting to me. So he hadn't really made... Peter Jackson is a filmmaker from New Zealand. He hadn't really made a lot of movies prior to this. He was known for a couple of like B-list art house like horror gore movies. And they were pretty successful like within that niche audience. But nothing in terms of like big budget blockbuster films... Um, he had, I don't, I don't even know how much of, like, how much exposure he had to Hollywood. I think it was very much indie art house films were, like, his, his niche, and he hadn't even really made that many of them. So, he, the ones that he did were pretty successful. So, he actually, him and Fran Walsh's wife were developing an original story, an original fantasy story they were writing together, and they were using the Lord of the Rings books as kind of, like, a foundation and, like, an inspiration for that. But when that their that idea wasn't really going anywhere, so they were like, why don't we just try to figure out if we can like option the rights to this book and just like make Lord of the Rings? And so they they decided to do that. Their original idea was to do one Hobbit film, and if that worked and was successful, they would do Lord of the Rings. So he acquired the rights to the books. He originally developed them as two movies. They were gonna be two movies because he didn't think he was gonna get approved or a budget to do three. So they pitched it, and the producers at Miramax is where, where they originally pitched it, wanted to do it only as one movie. They were like, we don't want to risk giving you a budget to make two. And he refused because he's like, there's just no way we can make <laughs> this entire story in one movie. They're like, fine, it'll be one nine-hour movie. Either the worst movie, like the longest movie of all time. <laughs> and so, yeah, so what happened then? So they resisted that idea. And Miramax was like, fine, if you can find another production company in the next three weeks, like, we'll release you from your contract and you can keep the rights to the book. So they had three weeks to find another production company that would, like, greenlight this idea for two movies. So they took it to New Line Cinema. And the head of New Line Cinema, Bob Shea, he really liked the idea. They pitched it to him. And he was like, there's no way you can do this in two movies. you got to do them in three. And so he greenlit three, like, at the pitch. And he also greenlit the idea of them filming them simultaneously. And so that's what they did. They actually filmed these three movies at the same time. Um, which I think no is... Way. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what leads to, like, why the third one is so good. Is, like, it there weren't... It doesn't feel like an installment in the film franchise it really just feels like it's one continuous story that got broken up and like came out at different times yeah so all three of these movies began um they kind of like they started doing their like early production stuff the filming began in 1999 so this movie started being filmed in 1999 and it took 274 days y2k who right it took 274 (laughs) days to shoot so they shot the they shot all three simultaneously over the course of 270 days in new zealand on location in new zealand pretty much all of the sets in this movie are real places in new zealand where they use like miniatures for um like the different castles and stuff but everything else is is real, which I think is what gives this movie such a sense of like lived in like yeah. feel. I mean, I think you like you watch these and you don't feel like it's like a made up place. Like it, it feels no. like a real place. Um, so that's I I just think that's super interesting. So I think I kind of want to talk about like the the scope of storytelling in this film because I think it's really rare to have and what I what makes this movie so important to me is that it's really rare I don't actually think it's really been done quite to the success of this film before um to have an epic fantasy action movie blockbuster but also have like a very very internalized character driven film with pristine storytelling and plot like you don't really get all three of those in one movie um and I think these three movies do that really well and I think that's what makes them so good and I think the third one is the best example of it I think you get these 
really beautiful character arcs. You have incredible acting, but you also have a really, really important story being told that has its own themes and metaphors and discussions of human society and, and social construct that that are playing out in this world. And I think the conclusion of it all is is so good. And that's what makes this movie, I think, so so important and so good. But I I think this movie kind of changed the way storytelling was done in film, essentially, in that you could do these kinds of films. Like, this, this movie kind of made it obvious and opened the doors in Hollywood to this idea that you could do these like, very deep humanized stories that grapple with ideological and moral conflicts. Like, such, like for example, in this movie, you know, the second one largely is about the military-industrial complex. <laughs> like, that's that's kind yeah. of the center theme of that movie. And, um, and you know, strategic allying with, with countries and, and powers or what, you know, not countries in this world, but that's kind of what it's about. I mean, you can, you can definitely tell that Tolkien, like, drew on his experience in the war. <laughs> I think he was in World War I, um, uh, when he was making this movie, or when he was writing these books. But, um, you can do that, and I think, like, you know, the general idea of this, of this story is the battle of good and evil and the corruption of power and greed, but you can also do it against a backdrop of like stunning visual effects which is it's really really rare that you have both of those things equally shown in a film like usually one of those is going to overtake the other and typically in an action like fantasy movie it's going to be the visual effects that kind of they like distract from the actual story and I think one thing that that doesn't happen here is is that is is I think it's important like you get attached to the characters they have growth they have these like deep internal conflicts with within themselves and I think it's really important like in the development of the story that like Frodo isn't really he's kind of an anti-hero in that he doesn't really do what he's supposed to do in the end I mean he he like he does succumb to the ring in the end which I think is a really important like turning point of the movie where you realize it's not just going to be an action movie where the end is going to be okay it's going to be this like flawed hero who he doesn't actually do what he's supposed to do but he it it gets done by accident kind of because he falls over the ledge but he doesn't do it like he yeah he doesn't want to because it's like the you know again it's like that inner conflict of like power like when you have that power and that like hunger for you know yeah so interesting the hubris the the hubris of greed (laughs) in this film is so important and I think all of this is happening these are like very very human experiences of like these flawed characters who are dealing and grappling with this idea like every single character that comes across this ring is dealing with this of like if I take on this task I am going to succumb to this and all these things and obviously you have Gollum as this example he's like the you know manifestation of that but all of this is happening against this backdrop of like stunning visual effects, especially in the end when they're in the mountain and they're in Mount Doom and they're trying to like it's so it's insane. Just, yeah, it's just it's really it's like you feel like it's real. Like the CGI is not overdone, which I think is because this movie largely created CGI. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean it's amazing looking back at it now from the fact that it's came out in two thousand and three, right? Like it's pretty incredible the level of effects that they were able to create i mean cgi now it's like we just watched dune the other night which great great stunning cgi by the way um but it's so cool to see like you know they were able to achieve something that nobody else was doing and even when you watch it today you know how like almost 20 years later right it still feels like oh this is something that it doesn't feel dated because i think they did such a thoughtful job with the cgi where you know, there's a few places where you're like, yeah, like today would be a little bit better or whatever. Like, especially Gollum, I think is the one that looks like kind of the most like dated, but I mean, overall, like the CGI is incredible and so cinematic the way that they frame things too. It's amazing. Yeah. And I think, so like the big one, like, I totally agree with you. I think the big ones to me, like, I think, you know, as you mentioned, the movies are, they're over, well, the first one would be over 20 years old, but the, about 20 years old as a whole. And, um, I think, like, certainly technology has evolved and filmmaking has evolved since then. But these movies, as you said, still hold up today. And I think the reason they've evolved is because of this movie. I think it was a huge milestone in in visual effects and and cinematography. 
And I think, um, kind of, I, I, I agree with you, like, the two big standouts, especially in the third one for me, that are, that are a little, um, you know, they could be done a little bit better. They still hold up, but you could tell, like, okay, this is, you know, the movie is made in 2003, is Gollum, and I think The Army of the Dead is the other one that kind of doesn't really, like, it. it's fine, but it doesn't really, like, stand. But it's for giving, the- like, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> A little bit. It's like, giving like ghost Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> vibes. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Um, <laughs> but but the rest of it is not like it stands up today. Like it's still, especially in the large scale battle scenes where like these sequences where you have like thousands of horses and stuff. Clearly, there aren't actually that many, but you can't tell. I mean, it's really fascinating, and I think. I think the reason that this stands up so well and that the CGI didn't quite overtake the storytelling aspect of it is because I think it was blended so well with the regular, like, props and visual effects and hair and makeup and costuming of this movie. And I think it wasn't... The CGI is not meant to be the centerpiece of the film, which I think a lot of the newer, like, these new action movies that are trying to be innovative in the way they, they're like, this is how much CGI we can do. Like, look at all the CGI we can do. This movie is using CGI only to bolster the parts of the movies that, like, absolutely need it. Like, they're not overusing it at all. Like, they're only using it where they need to use it. And I think it's really interesting, like, the Gollum character specifically, because, like, how else are you going to do that character? Like, how can you no, do that? No, you literally can't. <laughs> you yeah. literally can't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, and what I you think, said is so brilliant and true. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's so fascinating that, like, I think this was probably, I mean, I would say, I, I would say it's probably the first, but I don't, I don't, I don't actually know for sure, but I would say it's the first, if not the first, definitely the most revolutionary of movies that use this kind of CGI for, for character which is um where they have like there's like an actual person playing Gollum not just voicing him over and so I think that's what gives that because that character is super important to the story and I think you need humanistic and like emotional visceral reactions from him and you can't get that if you don't have like an actual person playing that character that can do those facial expressions and I think what's so interesting of how they did that was they had never done a character, a full character of CGI before, and they have, like, Andy Serkis, like, actually playing Gollum, like, with the other actors, like, he's there acting those scenes and blocking those scenes, instead of just voicing over, like, a computer-generated, like, animation that isn't really there, that isn't, like, a physical person there, and I think what that does, too, is it gives, you know, like, the actors that play Frodo and Sam something to react to, like, there's, like, a person there, that, which I think is... If that wasn't there, it would feel a little bit hollow, I feel like. so. Yeah, I don't think you'd have that same, like, engagement that makes it feel so real. Because I, I think that what you're talking about is, like, again, the the way that they chose the locations is stunning. Like, none of it feels... Like, it is a fantasy world and it is very exaggerated. But at the same time, there's things that feel so grounded in reality that it doesn't feel so fake. Like, you're just in an alternate universe almost. But I think the characters, too, like, they do such a good job creating these really complicated and you know super interesting characters and I think that that in particular is an example of how it really elevates the story and creates these nuanced characters that you wouldn't be able to um, achieve otherwise. I agree with you and I think the way that I can describe how realistic it feels and and why the visual effects stand up so well and were so revolutionary is that it doesn't like, watching this movie 20 years later, it doesn't feel dated at all. It just feels like the mo- the, the realm and, like, the, the world that they're in in that film has just lived in. Like, it's not... Like, it feels like that's a real place that people existed and had lives and and stories and things like that. And I think that's what's so interesting about this film is, like, you get a movie like you know, the original Star Wars films, while those were so innovative when they came out and they, and they did that too, like they felt very lived in. Watching those now, it like <laughs> while I love those movies so, like with all my heart, they obviously are very, very outdated. Yeah, they're super outdated and like really cheesy. And again, like they did so much on like literally a shoestring budget, so props to them, but yeah. it isn't it isn't the same that you get here where I do feel like everything was done so thoughtfully and... And and I think that what's cool, too, about what J.R. Tolkien's, like, original story provides is it is, like, these larger 
humanist thematic elements, but because it's not set in like the future or like space or something like that, like it always kind of feels timeless. You know what I mean? Whereas I think anything spacey starts to feel kind of dated because like technology does catch up. And at a certain point, you're kind of like, I don't know, this isn't like as innovative as it used to be in like the 80s. Um, So I, I think that's what's so cool about this is it's like these kind of forever, like these, I don't know, what am I trying to say? Like they're themes that I think are always going to be prescient and like top of mind. Like they're, yeah, they're, they're ageless themes. Um, and because they're like set in this fantasy world, that's almost, you know, it's not, it's not even like it's set back in time. It's just like a totally different world that allows you to kind of, I don't know, look at things a little bit differently. And it's not really about that. You know what I mean? I absolutely, I absolutely agree. And I think like to your point um it kind of is reminiscent of like comparing something like this of why it's so important to set this in just like a completely different realm because it gives it that air of feeling timeless but obviously Tolkien is drawing from like directly from his experiences in in a war and I think that's you know it it gives it that sense of like it's something we can all relate to like the themes and the metaphors that are being discussed in this film about like ideological and moral conflict are real things that humans experience and having these flawed beautiful characters have these like incredible character arcs and having so many of them have very very well thought out character arcs is really important and I think it's what you know we it it has this beautiful background of CGI and visual effects and everything but at the core of it is like this beautiful character story and plot that is just it's it's really it's really just those visual effects and the CGI are just a vehicle to like tell this story. And I think you don't get a lot of those kinds of um, CGI for heavy movies that are actually not about the CGI. It's more, it's about the, the story. And like, you know, we mentioned Avatar earlier and I think while Avatar had potential to be a really good story because the story is very interesting, it was so overtaken by the visual effects for me. Yeah. I mean, it was all about the CGI. Like, the plot became, like, second fiddle. And I think it'd be interesting, actually, to watch Avatar back now because, again, it depended so heavily on the CGI. That was really what it was about. But I feel like if we looked at it now, it would feel super dated and it doesn't have that really compelling storyline to keep you engaged anymore. Like... It was very much about, like, the theatrics and visual spectacle, but it didn't have that same, like, meat to it or, you know, the same type of character development or progression to make it, I think, a timeless movie. I don't think that people are really watching, going back and watching that now saying, like, oh, this is such a great movie. Like, way to go. No, I agree (laughs) because, again, like, they're doing, they're incorporating that kind of CGI, that Lord of the Rings made happen I mean it's the the character CGI where they're making these characters with actual like human actors playing the character not just voicing it over but that they wouldn't be able to do that if Lord of the Rings didn't have the Gollum character to base that technology on and so that's I think that's just like why this movie is so timeless but so it like does that but because you know we can say like okay just like Gollum is a little bit outdated but it doesn't really matter because the rest of the story is still super important and timeless so you 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 don't really get distracted by that fact I think when you rewatch Lord of the Rings and I think just kind of like to your point what you made when you said about the space like the future movies that were made it kind of reminded me of like I love Back to the Future it's like one of my favorite trilogies of all time but if you watch the second movie after 2015, it's really bad because the second movie is set in 2015 where they go to the future and it's just not what 2015 looked like at all. Yeah. And like, so it's just so mm. bad. It's just like so outdated. You're like, wow, they thought we were going to be in flying cars. Like, interesting. Okay. You're like, cute. Well, we're still here in fucking normal cars because we're losers. <laughs> we can get it together. <laughs> So, I mean, it's just like, it kind of, you run that risk of doing a movie that's set in the future because you're eventually going to get to that year in the yeah, future and then you're going like to watch it and Jetsons be like... It's Jetsons or something. Like, I remember watching an episode of that, like, back when I was a kid. And I feel like it's maybe set in, like, the early 2000s or something. I think it came out in the 60s and then was set in, like, the 2000s, which, again, like, whoa, 2000s. And, like, you know, it's all these cities with, like, flying cars and stuff, and it's just... And everyone's eating, like, jello. I don't know. Like, that's what I remember. <laughs> it's really funny that, like... This is very, again, very tangential, but, like, 
It's so funny that, like, every, like, show or movie from the 60s and 70s that was set in the future, like, their idea of the future was flying cars. Flying cars. I don't know a single car manufacturer that even tried to develop. (laughs) Like, that was just not the vibe. We're good. (laughs) We're like, people can barely keep it together on the ground. (laughs) Like, we really don't need people flying. (laughs) Imagine a rollover crash, but, like, in the air. (laughs) Just, like flipping through like infinity (laughs) feels messy (laughs) yeah it feels like not a great idea anyway um but i again like this movie i think just does such a perfect job at blending the cgi only where it needed to be to like bolster these practical effects it was not the star of the show although it was so revolutionary it didn't take away from the story in any way. It just it was there to just like move the story along when it where it needed to be which is i think that's what CGI is for and I think that's not how it's being used at all but I think that that should be how it's used in movies it's just not I think when movies use CGI they always overdo it I think that's always the critique of movies that are including CGI in them in some ways that they always are like okay how 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 bad is this gonna be like I remember when I watched the Hobbit movies for the first time they are not as good as Lord of the Rings, just for many reasons. But one of them is that all of the costuming and, like, the way that the dwarves look and their beards and everything are all CGI when they don't need to be. And so it's just very over... It felt it felt very overused and it's very obvious. And so I just think that's kind of, like, that's the downside. And I think, like, while it's so... It's really interesting because while it's so revolutionary, with that kind of revolutionary technology kind of comes this, like idea of like did lord of the rings in some way create a monster <laughs> that they brought cgi into these into the film industry in such a popular way that like now all of these movies that have such potential are run the risk of overdoing it with with visual effects um so i don't know i mean i think i it i'm kind of it's something that i've been thinking about in terms of this new Lord of the Rings TV show that's coming out, it's not the story, it's, like, stories from the Silmarillion, which is essentially, like, the history encyclopedia of Middle-earth. Um, and that's being, that's coming out on Amazon, so there's there's some other things going on there, but I'm that's something that I've been really curious about, of, like, how are they going to do with CGI? Are they just going to really, like, over-budget use it? But... With that, I think maybe it's a good time. This is something that you and I have discussed a lot in that, like, that's that's only one aspect of, of a risk that I see, but there's something else going on there that I think it's maybe a good time to talk about that you and I have discussed in that. I think wh- I think the reason that it's connected to visual effects is because with vis- with all of these companies and film industry in the film industry all these production companies trying to be the next big revolutionary thing comes the need for money and who has bottomless pits of money but non-film industry corporations <laughs> so i think something that we're seeing a lot of and and i'd love to get your take on this and and talk about this is um big corporations online corporations uh buying into the film industry and I think something we just saw recently that you and I are both very heartbroken about I think is the Amazon which is where Lord of the, the new Lord of the Rings show is being produced which is why I bring it up um Amazon just uh acquired MGM which is I mean what a crazy world that we live in where Amazon now owns I mean golden age darling like this, I mean, I just feel like MGM is such a huge like facet of Americana and has always been, I mean, really successful ever since the golden age. Like it's definitely had some ups and downs, but I think it, it's never something that I thought that like a huge tech conglomerate would come to own. Like I always kind of thought that Hollywood um, was kind of its own like world and was independent. So it's interesting to see, you know, them being sold to a company as evil and fucking the worst as Amazon. <laughs> it's like, uh, heartbreaking. I don't know. So maybe that is like truly the end of the studio system and studios as we know it now that um, Amazon is, you know, made such a big move like that. I think it's really fascinating because I love the studio system films and I think we both, we both do. Obviously there's a lot of critique and a lot of problems, problematic stuff with those, but 
like you said, like, the big three, like, Warner Brothers, MGM, Columbia, Columbia. you know, mm-hmm. are huge facets and huge, you know, figures in um, our pop culture lexicon. And I think a lot of Americana is developed through those film production companies, through those studios. And I think MGM is the one that has always been like, you can rely on MGM. Like, even if the other ones go bankrupt and something happens, like, MGM is going to be fine. Like, MGM is going to still do its thing. Even now, it's still making the same kind of movies in terms of the glitz and glamour as it was making in 1930. And I think it's it's one of those things where you're like, at least we have Metro Goldwyn Mayer. It's never going to. At gonna... least we have. Yeah. Yeah. It's never Everything gonna... else might be going to shit, but at least we know we're going to get some, like, good movies along the way. <laughs> but now, I mean, it's. And even I think with the kind of disillusion of the golden age of Hollywood and the breaking up of the power of the studio system with in like the sixties where what was happening was big, big corporate companies like, like, um, uh, general electric and Panasonic or Sony or something. They were, they were, they were buying production companies like, um, Columbia and Warner brothers and things like that. But what they were doing was they were doing that, but they were just like let like giving the reins to the directors and like letting the directors do whatever they wanted. What we have here that's different is you have companies who are like uber uber powerful, like Amazon, who already have their own streaming services and are really trying to buy their way into the film, yeah, the production aspect of it are not only buying these production companies but are gonna start producing movies and largely being in control of the content and I think with MGM getting purchased and acquired by a huge conglomerate or huge company like Amazon it's just kind of the a, a weird reality of like the what we know as the film industry that even through all of its trials and tribulations has largely remained the film industry is no longer really the film industry. It's part no. of this corporate part of big tech. tech. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's MGM succumbing to that kind of like sign signals like the end of this like true end of the era of Hollywood. I agree. I mean, it's I I think it's just so upsetting on so many levels and it's it's just weird to realize I think how many of the companies that we interact with are owned by like larger conglomerates this just being kind of the most recent of of many but it is I don't know kind of disturbing we're basically coming to a place where we're not able to choose anymore like even if you try not to consume certain materials like you still end up supporting a few large companies and I think that that's such a weird place to be in yeah and it's like <laughs> so, it's like you it's know like... it just it walks that fine line very specifically of not being a monopoly but it is kind of a monopoly and I think that like while it's not really technically breaking any laws this feels in direct contradiction to that you know supreme court ruling from the um the basically broke up the power of the studio system in I don't remember I don't remember the the name of the case but that we discussed in our episode on on uh, the studio system, but this kind of feels in direct contradiction to that. I mean, it's it's taking power and control in a completely different way, because you know that was more largely regarding like movie theaters, because that's that was how people were engaging with content. But now this is all about online streaming, and this is where films are being released now, because MGM getting acquired by Amazon is kind of signaling this 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 age where movie going is not going to be part of our culture anymore no it's like you watch movies from home and that's how you are like consuming content you know it's not that you're which I understand but yeah it is it's interesting to I think be here during what feels like such a pivotal moment where it, it it does feel like this is such a big blow and I think that there are some positives and negatives to streaming services like Netflix like I do think that the content that they've created has allowed us to illuminate stories that probably wouldn't have been able to be told um, by the studio system. So I think that there's something to be said for that. Like I do think that there is this interesting like dichotomy between when you have companies who have so much power coming from non like, I don't know, non like film backgrounds. I do think that it opens some doors and you have access to 
an audience that is willing to consume content that, again, probably wouldn't have been able to have been made in the past through traditional channels, which I think that there's some really, you know, amazing things that have come out of that um, and some, you know, really incredible stories that we've been able to see because of instances just like that, like Netflix. But at the same time, it's like, it's power that I think we need to like still be aware of and limiting because it does feel weird to have just a few people controlling so much of the media content and it it does feel concerning (laughs) yeah I agree and I think you know what what I love about like Netflix and streaming services like that is that you get those kinds of stories like you were mentioning that you wouldn't get any other way but you get them in form you get them in the form of a television show and I think exactly that is the proper platform for for like a tv series a mini series things like that where you can sit at home and watch these prolonged storylines over the course of a few episodes i think what's really sad though is there is something about film that going to a movie and engaging with the visual like emotional feeling that you get when you're watching a movie on a big screen is like you don't you don't get certain movies that you you just you can't watch dune at home like you i mean you can but like i mean i've done it it's not it's not but it's not going to be as impactful right and i think that there's also something like kind of beautiful about going to a movie like you you experience it individually but you're still there with other people and i think that that's something that you don't get when you watch a movie at home so it's it is kind of weird. Like, I wonder, like, is this the end of <laughs> the movie era? I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I just think for... I agree, and I think it's really sad because, like, you know, we grew up, our parents grew up, our grandparents, like, it just generationally, you grow up going to the movies. And this is the first generation where that's not really, like, your only option, and so you don't have to do that, and that means that you don't get the same like connection with other generations before you that have just always gone to the movies. Even if the experience at the movies are going to be a little bit different, you still go to the, the go to the movies. I mean, you everybody like everyone our age can relate to sneaking candy into the movie theater because you don't want to pay for the expensive candy <laughs> at the theater. It's like or like the disgusting sticky floor of a movie theater that is oh, so beautiful so and gross that, at like, the same time. Perfect like gross popcorn yeah, smell. They like piped gross. in. But you just like you don't get that anymore. Like it's and I think I think it is great to have a lot of people who can't afford to go to the movies have access to certain content that they would not have access to. And I think that's amazing. I think online streaming has opened the doors to having access to so much content that you wouldn't have without it. But I think you also lose some of our the cultural importance of like movie going and the 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 emotional connection you have as a society when you're watching a, a a movie on the big screen. I think that's, I think that part of it is, is kind of sad. And I think like had like Lord of the Rings probably wouldn't be as successful if it came, no, out, if it now. came out now. No, definitely not. It was a cultural moment. Like people would, and I think that what's interesting too is growing up as like a child of the nineties. I mean, you remember when Harry Potter came out, even the books, like it was such a big deal. You dress up like a wizard and like wait at your fucking Barnes and Nobles to get your, you know, the first copy. And it was like such a big deal to see like who was going to finish it first. Um, And I think, you know, again, like movies used to have that allure. Like, I don't think that there's many movies that people are waiting for all night dressed as like a fucking hobbit to go watch. Like, no, I, yeah, I agree. There isn't, there isn't like one movie where as a culture, we're like, that's a goddamn movie. And I think this is this is a movie where and you know in terms of like the academy awards as well i you know i I've, I've been watching the ones that are nominated this year and i just there are some that are really good and i and i do want to talk about power of the dog very briefly in comparison to lord of the rings but i think like in the past few years there hasn't been many movies that i leave watching it and say like that was a fucking movie like that was a cinematic experience that was what a movie should be and i think when it comes down to it and why this movie is so good without like, you know, eloquent words to describe it. It's just, this is a fucking movie. Like this is how you make a movie. <laughs> like this is a good Truly. Film. And I think that's something that, especially with the Academy Awards, and I think we're probably going to talk about this a little bit more next week, has lost sight of. And I think the big critique besides, you know, the, you know, the racism of nominations and things like that 
Oh, you mean the the white supremacy? The white supremacy of the Academy Awards. I think one of the big things in terms of the films that are nominated and are getting all the buzz is that they are every year are more and more detached from what people actually think is a good movie. And people are now reacting, instead of the Academy Awards reacting to what society wants, it's people being like, oh, I'm supposed to like this movie, because it's clearly super intellectual to like this movie, because the Academy is nominating it for Best Picture. Even even when it's not, I mean, every year the movies feel, the movies that are getting all the accolades feel more austere, and they feel more disconnected from what people actually want to see in it. And I, you know, I watched Power of the Dog last night. And, um, I, you know, hot take, I thought it was fucking terrible. (laughs) No, I don't think that's a hot take. My mom said the same thing. I actually, probably this is like, regrettably, embarrassingly, I actually haven't seen, I don't think any of the nominations this year, because again, it's not films that are part of kind of the wider popular culture that it's like these kind of obscure films. I don't, I think there were also a lot of films that came out this year that were nominated in other categories that I think were superior that I did see. That weren't nominated for Best Picture. There's like 10 fucking nominations this year, which is also like way too many, but whatever. I digress. <laughs> I, I watched, there are a couple that I've, I love, and I like I Belfast and Licorice Pizza. You heard it here. I, those are fucking great. Those two movies are so good, but they're not going to win. And I, and I think because what happened in, the re, in recent years is that um, I think people, filmmakers, realized based on what was winning, that there is a specific formula to yeah, winning a best picture. Win. And yeah. I think more and more are we going to be seeing our movies that are just made to fit this equation of this is going to win a best picture. When when it does that, it lose, completely loses sight of the storytelling. I mean, it, it kind of feels like, yeah, when like when we talked about the best years of our lives, like how that came out at a time when other... <laughs> movie companies were putting out like really fluffy films like it feels a bit like that where again to your point like there's a formula that people are following that has been successful but it's not really like what we as a society are like hankering for or the stories that we're seeing in other medium that are are really successful or are really like well received like euphoria or other films like that that I think are grappling with these like larger issues or kind of like issues that are culturally pressing what it feels like is they're trying to go very like esoteric with a lot of the Academy films, but they're not really collectively telling a story of our humanity or about any of the issues that anyone's facing. It's like these very like myopic films that look at like one relationship and are really dramatic, like revolutionary road style. And it's, it's just kind of boring. It's boring. It's like overdone. And to your point, like, I think that what's interesting about the Academy Awards too, is it's not like other film festivals that are, um, global or that you know look at truly what are the best films it is such a weird like niche thing where it still does I think have a lot of cachet but at the same time it's I think it's pretty poorly watched at this point like there are some like diehards like us <laughs> who watch it every year regardless but we we do watch it every year because again I think if you're a movie buff like it is still one of the really important like moments in like film stuff that happens during the year but at the same time it's like yeah the films that win are typically not the ones they're either tokenizey where it's like oh well we're gonna like do it just to like make sure we don't seem racist or whatever or they just pick things that again that are just like so conceptual or like myopic that it's like yeah this isn't this a this isn't the best film and then b it's like this isn't what anyone even wanted to hear about but like here we are <laughs> no and I you know that's exactly I was so fucking frustrated watching Power of the Dog because everyone's like it's amazing film and acting is great and I was watching it and I was just like yeah the acting is really good but like pe- people are losing sight filmmakers to me are losing sight of the point of a movie and I think you and I have discussed this in almost every episode that we've talked about is the po- the purpose of a film is to mirror and reflect society back onto the audience so that uh, the audience can have an emotional connection and reaction to the story being told film is a medium for storytelling there has to be a plot in the film and i feel like, like that's like literally the bare minimum and literally, yet here we are <laughs> and I, think I was watching power of the dog and i was like okay the acting was great the cinematography was good like i get it but like 
there was no fucking plot. I was like, I don't, this movie is terrible. Like, I don't, I just, I felt completely ambivalent when it was over. And I just feel like it, that frustrated me so much because I, when I watch a movie, like, I want to have an emotional connection, an emotional reaction to what's happening. Like, I want to feel something from the film. And if I'm not feeling it, I'm like, why is this movie getting not getting all the accolade for best picture? It is not it's the, the worst best picture. Too. Like there's honestly nothing worse than watching a bad film because they're also always like, I swear to God, two hours long. Yeah, and then you're oh like, well God. that is two hours of my life that I literally can't so get back. Long. Like thank so you for long. wasting my fucking time. Like <laughs> I, I will say Belfast phenomenal film and it's not going to win best picture and it should it's honestly better it's the best movie of the oscar nomination not an oscar nominated best picture movies that i've seen i think it's the it's beautiful and it tells a beautiful story and i just think it's going to get overlooked because everyone intellectual is saying the power of the dog is the best movie and then that's so that's just what's going to win but i'm like why like why is it the best like we why write, is it so like, great scathing medium article <laughs> honestly i will but do we digression. also like a hundred million year old curmudgeons being like remember when movies used to mean something and i know the seriously <laughs> i'm like people probably think we're like 90 but we're actually in our 20s it's fine but it's fine <laughs> to conclude i um this movie is a fucking movie and i think it has all it has the equation plus a beautiful story and i think Ugh, it's so good and it's funny it has moments of levity it has moments of heartbreak like it's balanced so perfectly like you love all of the characters it's so good when at the every time every single time at the end of this movie every time i watch, i've seen this movie give or take like 150 times these movies three of them 150 times probably Every time I watch the end of this movie when at Aragorn's coronation when the hobbits are there and they bow and he says you bow to no one and everyone bows to them I just I there's I can't I contain myself every it's like time they, I'm just every I'm tearing time. up just thinking about it and then they and he bows and everyone bows to them and they just look like they weren't expecting it oh god it's beautiful like that is why we go to the movies that okay? is why we go to the movies and i think that's the most important thing about why this movie is so good is that it blends the truly large scale epic with sort of like realism and internal humanistic storytelling and at the core of it it just discusses these like social moral ideological conflicts that everyone can relate to and i think that's what that's what makes it so good and i think to sum it up there is a really uh, a really <laughs> great article on the guardian that i read about it and the um this quote i think just totally sums up how i feel about this movie and um in the article talking about return of the king it said no flabber has been left ungasted by mr jackson's mighty battle sequences nor no gob unsmacked wow <laughs> and i just feel that's true i agree um, consider me uh, flabbergasted. And no flabber has left been left ungasted. Un- <laughs> it's my so favorite thing. For <laughs> no gob unsmacked. <laughs> Incredible writing. This is why. Ten out of ten. <laughs> we go to the movies. <laughs> this is why. Um. Anyway, so that's I could talk about this movie for a hundred hours, but I won't. Um. But we'll we'll just leave it at that. This is this is a really good one, and I think you know. Um. You've heard a little bit of our, obviously, our fiery frustrations about the Academy Awards, even though we like them, we do have a little bit of an internal moral conflict Do we about. like them, or do we just hate ourselves? No, we Sarah. just hate ourselves. <laughs> we just keep coming back we just, more. But here's the thing is, I think we both love movies so much and, like, know how much they mean and, like, why they're so important. That's why we started this podcast, that, like, I think that we want this very, like, prestigious American film award to mean the same thing as how we see film. And it's, like, frustrating when it doesn't measure up. And every year I come being, like, maybe this is the year they get it right. And every year I'm left being, like, wow, what, like, a fucking, like... It just is so, like, insulated and, like, out of touch. And it's just, like... Ah, so frustrating to watch. Anyways, we are going to next week discuss uh kind of we're going to f- end our month about the Oscars and discuss kind of like an overarching history of the Academy Awards and uh criticize it probably. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our episode about Lord of the Rings and about how much I hated uh Power of the Dog was not expecting <laughs> to get that emotionally fired up about it. <laughs> Here we are. 
You're like, that's why I came here. <laughs> that's why I'm here. Um, but if you like what you're hearing and you want to know more about cocktails specifically, we spend a lot of time on our social media uh, putting out that content for you guys. So Where I make you sweet, sweet cocktails almost every week. I didn't this weekend because whatever. Fuck okay. it. Life Fuck got it. in the way. <laughs> but here we are. Um, yeah, come join us on TikTok. You can find us at Hitchcock Happy Hour. We're also on Instagram at Hitchcock Happy Hour. Sarah posts really fun film stills and we talk about the latest episodes. So be sure to check us out there. And if you like this, um, you know, like, rate review and subscribe us we want to know that you love our content um and don't feel afraid to reach out we read every dm that we get so (laughs) until next week cheers. cheers